know the lyrics to the extended version of every 90s TV theme song? And you recite the entire script to Wayne's World on command, verbatim? Might you wax nostalgic about injuries sustained during backyard wrestling matches? Have you pontificated at length over what beer goes best with Mario Kart? Do you philosophically dwell for inappropriate lengths of time on phenomena like snowsuits, minor five chords, Rocky Four, baseball stats, wall-mounted pencil sharpeners, cinnamon toast crunch, Murray Wilson, seasons two through eight of The Simpsons, Bond villains, then friends, lovers, palindromes, have we got the show for you. It's Calling BS with Brandon and Scott, your esoteric clerics for the fleet of mouth and mind. Brutally honest, meticulously obsessive, and painstakingly pragmatic. Check us out and BS, I love you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing John Algernon... Gwendolyn and Cecily from The Importance of Being Earnest, a a trivial comedy for serious people. This is one of those where I always think the subtitle should basically always be included (laughs) when you're referencing The Importance of Being Earnest, a trivial comedy for serious people. Yes. We would like to thank listener and patron Rebecca for suggesting that we cover this one. It is a great story, and I had a lot of fun revisiting it. I did too. Had you, uh, well, I guess, what was your exposure to Importance of Being Earnest before? Did we read this in high school? I seem to remember that we did. We have established that we had different English classes, (laughs) at least some of our grades of high school. I want to say, though, that I read it in a drama class in high school. I did not read it in a drama class in high school because I never took a drama class in high school. Uh, but I know that I read this. Never the boards. No, no. Uh, but I, um, but I know that I read this in high school and I really liked it then. And I really liked it today when I, uh, when I watched it, I watched the, uh, the BBC 19. What did I, what year did I say that was? It 52? was 1986. Oh, there's a because there's a fifty two adaptation too. Yeah, this that. is the uh, the nineteen eighty six uh, adaptation starring John Woodnut, Rupert Fraser, Rupert Fraser, Paul McGann. It's uh, quite good. I mean, it's a BBC. It's just sort of a play on film, but uh, the acting was good. Uh, well, I remember it from high school. I also know that at least in one class in college, uh, as, as an English major, we did the importance of being earnest. Um, and so I had some familiarity. I listened to a Lib- LibriVox version. Didn't have time to sit down with. I, I do have the uh, the text from that college course. I still have the, the text uh, on my shelves. But I listened to a LibriVox uh, version. That was that was pretty good. Good uh, good voice acting from uh, the people who are doing that LibriVox recording. Again, LibriVox is a great podcast company that put out um, works that are in public domain. Uh, narrated sometimes with one person doing everything. Sometimes with a full cast. The one I was listening to had a full cast. It was it was a really good production. Oh, that's fun. Producer Andrew, what's your familiarity with importance of being earnest? I did read it in high school and and saw a film version in that class, but I mostly know it because it was a minor fixture in Spider-Man 2. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, and does, then what mentioned in that one. Yeah, it's it's the play that Mary Jane is in and they keep cutting to scenes where they're talking about identity and, and being honest about your identity and, and your intentions and stuff. And then when I read it in high school, that was my entire context for it. It's like, okay, let me look at this like through the lens of Spider-Man. 
which worked pretty well. That's how I try it. Try to approach all literature. I don't know if it's come through in our discussions here. Through or the the fire. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Through giant white bug eyed lenses. That's how I try to look at all literature. <laughs> Um, listeners, if you are unfamiliar, though, with the, the basic plot, The Importance of Being Earnest was a play written by Oscar Wilde that was first performed in 1895, and it tells a farcical tale of coupling between four adults who pretend to be who they're not, which may happen to be who they are. That will make sense after the full <laughs> synopsis. So I have a little bit of trivia about this. Um, as we've kind of already touched on, the play was adapted into, well, has been adapted many times, particularly into film. There is a 1952 version a 1992 version and a 2002 version that had Colin Firth, Rupert Everett, Reese Witherspoon, and Judy Dench. That is a strong cast. Yeah, it is. Uh, a couple other people whose names I did not put down because their name, their stars don't shine quite as brightly as, <laughs> as those other ones. Um, there have been at least uh, one person found eight musical adaptations of the play, wow. though none of them have been successful enough to kind of become the iconic musical version of uh, the importance of being earnest. A uh, trivial comedy for serious people. Um, besides the musical adaptations that people keep taking swings at and seem to be missing <laughs> again, based on the evidence that no one has heard the music from those. Uh, in 1963, there was an opera adaptation. And then in 2011, there was another opera adaptation of the importance of being earnest. And um, this play marked a high point in Oscar Wilde's career. He is one of the wittiest writers that I've ever read. And he is uh, noted for, both his wordplay and his farces, but also for some really good morality tales. Um, the picture of Dorian Gray or portrait of Dorian Gray, picture of Dorian Gray, picture of Dorian Gray uh, is one of the best morality tales that I think has ever been written. And it is, it is so good. Um, however, this was a high point of his popularity and professional success during his lifetime, but it ended very abruptly afterwards. Um, the play was well-received. It seemed to be very popular, but after its rant run began, there was a lawsuit and a court battle that revealed his secret homosexual life to the public. The play's run was ended. He was arrested and he was sentenced to two years of hard labor. And after his release from prison, he moved to France and he never returned to England again. And he died in poverty only a couple years after his release from his two years of hard labor when he was only 46 years old. Wow. Very unfortunate end there. And again, he was, he is, his writing is just there's a an energy even on the page yeah. <laughs> in reading his 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 writing is so alive and it just makes me so sad uh, how how things ended for him yeah. Uh, before we move on to the long synopsis, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick cast, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get uh, to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now, Joseph, are you ready? Yes, uh, this is a three-act play, so I'm going to summarize this in its act structure. Act one, Algernon is an idle British gentleman who is at his London home where he greets a good friend, another idle British gentleman named Ernest. Ernest is planning to ask Algernon's cousin, Gwendolyn Fairfax, to marry him. Algernon notices that Ernest's cigarette case has an inscription that reads, From Little Cecily, with her fondest love to her dear Uncle Jack. Uh, and he wants to know... Ernest, what's up with you having uh, this inscription on your on your cigarette case? If you're going to marry my my cousin, I would like you to know that you don't have you know another love and also who this Jack is. At this point, Ernest has to admit that his real name is Jack. He is the Jack. 
Algernon is very put out because Jack has always introduced himself as Ernest. <laughs> and Jack is embarrassed to admit that he uses the name Ernest while in town, but he is Jack in the country. And Algernon now accuses Jack of being a bunburiest. <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> Yes. And this only confuses Jack. He doesn't know what Algernon is talking about. And Algernon does not explain at this moment what he means by a bunburiest. Uh, Jack explains his situation. He was adopted as a young boy by a man named Thomas Cardew. In Cardew's will, Jack was made the guardian of Cardew's daughter, Cecily. Cecily lives at a country estate with Miss Prism. And she calls Jack her uncle, even though they're not actually related. Jack uh, told Cecily and Miss Prism, so these two women that are at the country estate where Jack also lives, uh, he told them that he has a ne'er-do-well, troublesome brother named Ernest who lived in the city. And he uses Ernest as an excuse to leave the country and go into London whenever he wants. So he's got to go take care of his brother. He's gotten into some mess. Now, Algernon reveals his own secret. Jack invented this black sheep brother named Ernest to be able to run off to London, but Algernon invented an invalid friend named Bunbury who lives in the country. Bunbury is uh, always asking for Algernon's help, or at least that's what Algernon says. So Algernon uh, is able to break whatever social engagements he has. For example, that very night, he's going to have dinner with Jack, even though he had a previous dinner engagement for over a week. But he's going to say he needs to go help Bunbury. So Jack insists. uh, So now Jack, he's the one with the double of being Ernest. Jack insists he's going to kill off Ernest if Gwendolyn accepts his marriage proposal. Which is awkward because Gwendolyn believes he is Ernest. But that's his plan. (laughs) He's going to go back to being Jack. That's his true name. Just then, Lady Bracknell, who is Algernon's aunt and Lady Bracknell's daughter, Gwendolyn, come. Algernon gets Lady Bracknell out of the room so that Ernest slash Jack can propose to Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn assures Ernest that she wants to marry him in a large part because she loves his name, Ernest. She's always wanted to marry an Ernest. (laughs) And this leaves Jack with a bit of a conundrum because he was about to kill off Ernest and reveal his true identity of Jack. But before you can even begin dealing with that, Lady Bracknell is I love how he even pushes her on it. He's like, well, wouldn't you love me if I had another name? And she says, but you don't have another name. Your name is Ernest, and that's why I love you. But what if my name were John or Jack? Well, that would be appalling. I, there's no way I could love you if your name was John or Jack. And he's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so now Lady Bracknell comes back, uh, and she begins grilling him about his family to make sure he is a good attachment for her daughter. Now, Jack er, uh, slash Ernest reveals that he has no relations. He was found in a handbag in a train station uh, when he was only a baby. And this is too scandalous for Lady Bracknell because a person should not have a train station and a handbag. It's their only family. (laughs) And so she refuses to let him marry her daughter. But this tragic tale of his childhood has made Gwendolyn love him even more. And she asks for his country address so she can go visit visit him. And Aldernot overhears this address and writes it down. Do do you notice where he writes the address? It's on the cuff of his sleeve. The cuff of his sleeve. I've never. Most people write it on their hand. It's a very specific in the stage directions, too. That's I know. what he does. I noticed that. Yeah. Yes. So act two, which it just seems like that would ruin your shirt. <laughs> uh, I guess if you, if you got some good soap, it's not going to be a big deal. <laughs> act two at Jack slash Ernest's country house. And I'm going to try and be very clear about 
who we're talking about in these, but it can get confusing. Uh, but at his country house, Miss Prism and Cecily talk about how serious her uncle Jack is and that it's probably because he's always so worried about his bothersome brother, Ernest. Dr. Chaucible, who is the vicar in the area, he comes to flirt with Miss Prism. That's basically the only reason he comes, right? <laughs> I like him. <laughs> they don't even really give him a bit of business. He's just there to flirt. He's great. <laughs> Um, and uh, after Chasuble and Prism exit to go on a walk so they can flirt, a butler announces that Mr. Ernest Worthington has, uh, or is it Worthington or just Worthing? Did I miss Worthing. that name? It's just Worthing. Okay. After Chasuble and Prism exit, a butler announces that Mr. Ernest Worthing has arrived. And we, as an audience, see Algernon enter, claiming to be Jack's rotten brother, Ernest. Cecily says she's heard how rotten Ernest is. And Algernon Ernest <laughs> suggests that Cecily, Cecily could reform him. <laughs> and, uh, they flirt shamelessly for a little while. Uh, and then Jack uh, slash Ernest returns from London. And Jack is dressed in his morning clothes. And he runs into Prism and Chasuble. Morning, like, he, uh, not, not, you know. Not like, uh, not, not break of day, more, yeah. But, uh, like, I, I, like so I've lost morning. a loved one. Yes. Uh, and so he runs into Prism and Chasuble and he says that his brother Ernest passed away from a chill in Paris. And they, they <laughs> I, I, I didn't summarize it, but there's a great conversation about how they should kill off Ernest because they don't want it to be anything that could be genetic with the family. They don't want anyone <laughs> to think he's weak. <laughs> so they set all on a chill. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, well, that, that was, uh, Jack and, and, uh, Algernon had had that conversation. So now he's here with Chasuble and Prism and he says, uh, Ernest passed away. Jack asks Chasuble if it would be possible for him to be christened Ernest and Chasuble agrees to that. So Jack's like planning, I've got to be stay Ernest for Gwendolyn's sake. So now, um, Cecily enters and announces that uncle Jack's brother is visiting and he's sitting in the dining room. Jack is very confused at this. He's furious when he sees that it's Algernon, but Cecily just interprets this as being part of the sibling feud because these brothers don't get along the greatest. When they are alone, Algernon slash Ernest proposes to Cecily who reveals that they are already engaged. And this confuses Algernon slash Ernest a great deal. And Cecily, it turns out has invented an entire romance for herself and her uncle's wicked brother, Ernest. And within this romance, it includes love letters that she has written. It includes them getting engaged and breaking off the engagement because any good love story has a broken engagement. And uh, <laughs> But at the moment, their engagement is back on. And Cecily says that what first attracted her to her uncle's brother was the name Ernest, which inspires absolute confidence and trust. <laughs> So now Algernon goes off to find Chasuble to see if he can schedule a christening so that he can be given the name Ernest. And Chasuble's just fine with all of this. Gwendolyn arrives and she meets Cecily. So, all right, listeners, I know at this point there are a lot of pretended identities and it could be confusing. So we have Algernon pretending to be Ernest and he is engaged to Cecily. We have Jack, who is pretended to be Ernest, who is engaged to Gwendolyn. Um, at this point, Gwendolyn has met Cecily. Cecily explains that she is Mr. Worthing's ward, and Cecily's a little uncomfortable with the idea of her Ernest being or having having such an attractive ward that he spends a lot of time with. Um, and Cecily clarifies that no, no, I am Jack Worthing's ward, and um, Gwendolyn is fine with that because she's engaged to to um, <laughs> Ernest. <laughs> but then things get awkward again very quickly when Cecily says, "I'm Jack's ward. I'm engaged to his brother Ernest." 
Uh, Gwendolyn says that's impossible because she's engaged to Ernest. Then Jack and Algernon arrive and things sort of get clarified. Cecily tells Gwendolyn that she has been deceived. Her fiance is Jack. Gwendolyn tells Cecily she's been deceived. Her fiance is Algernon. The women demand to know where Ernest is and then they storm out together, locked arm in arm. I'm sorry if that didn't make sense. See it on a stage. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) I did my best, but I didn't know how to explain all of that. Uh, Algernon and Jack now go out and find Cecily and Gwendolyn. Cecily asks Algernon why he pretended to be Ernest. And he says, well, it was to be able to meet you. And that's charming. So it works. Gwendolyn (laughs) asks Jack why he was pretending to be Ernest. And he says it was so he could go to London to see her more often. That's charming. And that works. Gwendolyn and Cecily almost forgive these two men. But then they realize that neither of them is named Ernest, and both Gwendolyn and Cecily want to be engaged to a man named Ernest. The men explain they've both scheduled a christening to be given the name Ernest, and the women are very impressed with their courage and their willingness to make this sacrifice. I love how they use courage to describe that that decision. Uh, But now, Lady Bracknell shows up. She followed Gwendolyn to this country house, and she sees Algernon and asks if this is where his friend Bunbury lives. And a very flustered Algernon says, no, he died. Lady Bracknell is introduced to Cecily, and she learns that Cecily is engaged to Lady Bracknell's nephew, Algernon, and she has many questions about the worthiness of this match for her family until she finds out that Cecily is wealthy, and then she's fine with it. But Jack now steps in and says he's not going to allow his ward Cecily to marry Algernon unless Bracknell gives him permission, Jack permission, to marry Gwendolyn. Chasuble arrives saying it's time for the christenings. <laughs> and then there's some <laughs> chaos. And uh, in this chaos, Lady Bracknell hears that there is a Miss Prism in the house. And she stops everything and demands to meet Miss Prism. Miss Prism is frightened when she sees Bracknell. Bracknell asks about a baby that Prism lost years ago. It, we learned that Prism left a house 28 years ago with a novel manuscript that she'd written herself in her handbag. And a baby in a baby carriage. Later, the carriage was found abandoned with, uh, with a bad unpublished novel in it. Prism says she has no idea what happened to the baby that day. At this point, Jack's interest is piqued and he runs and grabs a handbag and he asks Miss Prism if she knows it. She ecstatically says, yes, that's her missing handbag. And she's very grateful to have it returned to her. She does not connect these dots (laughs) at all. Uh, (laughs) And Jack thinks because of this, Miss Prism must be his mother. And he runs and hugs her and says, mom. And she says, no, no, I'm not. Go talk to Lady Bracknell. Bracknell explains that the missing baby was her sister's. So Jack is actually Algernon's older brother. And Jack wonders what his real name was. Uh, and Lady Bracknell says, oh, well, you're going to be named after your father, but no one remembers what that man's <laughs> name was. Uh, so they go digging through a book of military records because they know his name was, he was a general. He was General Moncrief. And they discover that General Moncrief's name was Ernest. So Jack really is Ernest. Algernon really is his wastrel younger brother. And Jack asks Gwendolyn if she can forgive him for telling her the truth during their entire relationship, which she does. <laughs> uh, and and uh, in the end, we have all the happy couples having resolved their issues. Including the Chasuble and uh, Prism. Prism, they're, yes, they're together at the end, too. Yes. I just love the, can you forgive me for telling you the truth? I know, and there's so many, uh, there are lots of lives like that in this. I just have to interrupt and say that in the film version with Colin Firth and, and Rupert Everett and, and all of those, that's the one that I saw. And there is a wonderful moment where they're like breaking down everything that happened with the, with the baby carriage and the handbag and the manuscript. And there's a moment where like the police are investigating the baby carriage. <laughs> and they said, all they found was a manuscript. And it, I can't remember the phrasing, but just like, 
peculiarly bad. And so you get this image in the film of the police looking at this manuscript just with frowns and just shaking their heads like, this isn't good. This is a bad novel. Like, they're not even upset that there's, you know, a, a baby carriage that's missing a baby. It's like, they're just looking at this manuscript and like, no, this is bad. <laughs> I, I think this would be one of the more fun plays that you could be involved in for an adaptation. Oh, yeah. Like there's, there's so many, I mean, there's so much wit already there on the page, but there's so many opportunities for inserting things like those, those looks that Andrew was just, just saying, um, and, and to add comedy beyond the obvious wit. Cause it, cause it's so, it's set up so great to just be hilarious. Yeah. And it's not particularly cinematic in the way that it's set up. Um, I mean, you basically have two, two settings, right? And it's not, you know, it's uh, not a ton house of and one other house and that's it. Yeah. It's not a ton of physical comedy. Uh, but the dialogue is just incredible. Yeah, I mean, the, it's a world where no one in reality acts like this. No one in reality talks like this, but you don't care because there's so much wit that is commenting on the real world that you just enjoy seeing this world on display. Yeah. It's a it's a lot of fun. Um, I was going to look up some of the great quotes because uh, – you, you cannot beat a good Oscar Wilde quote as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so some of these that we get from this, this play, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. <laughs> I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read on the train. <laughs> um, all women become like their mothers. That is their tragedy. No, uh, no man does. And that is his <laughs> to lose, to lose one parent may be regarded as a misfortune to lose. Both can be regarded as more like carelessness. <laughs> And that is so good. <laughs> I hope you have not been leading a double life, pretending to be wicked and being good all the time. That would be hypocrisy. It's, I mean, like the whole film is, or the whole, the whole play is just one joke after another. It's, it's really astounding. <laughs> yeah. He's able to string all of this together and it's all so funny. And it all is I mean, every line leads to either say something about who these people are or pushes the plot forward. And or it's like or very is, a, is a cutting efficient. insight into society. Yeah, it's right? really efficient. And like I when I was um, prepping, I was like, importance of being earnest. I'm like, it's been it had been years since I read it. But I'm like, oh, it, I know it's Oscar Wilde. I know it's a play. And I was kind of geared up for a longer production, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> to, to listen to or, or uh, to go. But it's so tight. Uh, it, it's um, I mean, it feels really odd to make this comparison, but in some ways, it feels Hemingway esque. And again, there's, there's no <laughs> only in this way is it Hemingway esque, where Hemingway was famous for like the um, economy fairness of of his word choice. Like if if the word didn't need to be there, he was going to cut it. If a plot point didn't need to be there, it was gone. Right. Uh, you you only left the bare minimum that was necessary to create the effect in the reader that you wanted, and in some ways this is really similar. Like this is a crazy farcical identity swapping plot, but it's also very small, (laughs) very tight. And and there's utter control about everything that's happening um, uh, on the stage. Yeah. I like that. Do you want to talk about these characters? Uh, Sure. Uh, Which do you want? Should we talk about the men first or the women first? We, we start by, we're sort of introduced to the men first. So let's go, let's go with the men first. Okay, so Algernon and Jack. We'll call them by those names so there's no confusion. <laughs> Ernest and Ernest. <laughs> yes. 
uh, I guess what stands out about these characters? Or maybe let's say what differentiates them. Because on the one hand, they're both kind of um, aristocratic fops <laughs> that don't do a whole lot. Yeah. you When you, um, in your summary, you mentioned that they're both idle. And I feel like that word idle is... Um, I mean, it can be applied to everybody. <laughs> everybody in this uh, in this work is just idle, and they don't really have anything to do. And so, it's interesting to see them. Um, I mean, they're basically just trying to do something. <laughs> like yeah. all of this uh, moving, and about. they don't know how. Yeah, <laughs> and, they, and so it's interesting that just the. I mean, it's. I guess it's a satire. Um, it's a it's a commentary on a certain class of people who just don't really have anything to do, and so the things that they do end up being ridiculous. Well, and I, I think this is where I mean, it's in the title: the importance of being earnest. Um, in the age when this was written, like the appearance of being about doing good and the appearance of you know seriousness was very much a marker of significance in the society. And this is Oscar Wilde saying, stop looking, <laughs> stop try- being worried about how you look, go do good, <laughs> you know, go, 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 go do something and don't worry about the appearance of it. And it was a very appearance um, centered uh, stretch of time, I, which that is obviously something that comes and goes, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's not only that, that moment in history, but it is something that was, very prominent in that moment. And, and like you said, for a particular class of people, like there, there was an importance in being earnest. Right. right. Uh, there's wordplay and pottery in using that as a dial of play, but he, he's, he's not just choosing that out of the ether because of the wordplay he's, he's talking about what he sees around him. Sure. Yeah. So that's what I um, see and, similar well, but, between these two. Yes. But I'd say, I'd say if I was going to say, which one of these is more idle Algernon. <laughs> yeah. Because Jack does have, at least the acknowledgement of some responsibilities right in in the uh, the country that he's escaping to the city to avoid uh-huh so i mean there's idleness there but algernon it's like what i mean what is he even avoiding when he goes bunburying <laughs> <laughs> it's just nothing it, it, his, their lives i mean all of these people their lives are just so empty of i mean in the opening uh, scene algernon's like big quest is for cucumber sandwiches right yeah <laughs> and and then he eats them all and then his big quest is to replace them that's like his his motivation <laughs> the, the, the the difference that i see between them is um in their background that uh jack doesn't know where he has come from and um there's kind of some interest in in his background and algernon is just rich and but also jack is like incredibly rich uh, I <laughs> I had a text um, that I got out of the library, and it's a uh, really good annotated um, version of the text. And it basically said um, that uh, Jack's income would have made him like fabulously wealthy. I mean, he's the richest person in the play by a long shot, apparently. Uh huh. So, but but he also has no idea who he is, and he came from a handbag, and um, and that's very different than uh, Algernon. Only relations are a train station and a handbag. <laughs> train station and a handbag. <laughs> so, anyway, 
I just on that note, I just want to say another rule of comedy specificity is always better. And I can't remember what it was, but they always name the exact train station. And he's inquired like, yes. when he finds out that Miss Prism left a, a handbag at a train station, he has to make sure, like, well, which train station was it? And he starts enlisting train stations. Oh, specificity in comedy is so great. Yes. So, I mean, other than that, they seem very similar to me. Yes. Uh, and I mean, you I guess the other thing where maybe you can differentiate them, you feel um, Jack's relationship with Gwendolyn is more established, right? Because he, he's he's been leaving the country to go see her more often, whereas Algernon's relationship with Cecily is just, hey, you're cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's Let's get married. Well, we already are planning to. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, so I, I will go with that. Cecily is so weird. <laughs> so I, so I, I, think, I feel like there's something more solid about Jack than Algernon, yeah, whereas Algernon is really just the fluff of aristocracy, mm-hmm. of uh, wealth without any responsibility. Like, that, that is all he is. And there's a little bit more. Not like he'd be the greatest guy <laughs> in the world for you, you know, to marry into your family, uh, to Jack. But there's a little more substance to Jack. Uh-huh. Yep, I agree. So what about uh, Cecily and Gwendolyn? <laughs> Cecily makes me laugh, but I cannot fathom being in a relationship with her. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Um... I, I think maybe my favorite scene is um, when Gwendolyn shows up at the at the country house and the, their first uh, at first they're super nice to each other. And it's, oh, I just met you, but I feel instinctively that I trust you. And then there's like they go from trust to mistrust to uh, union, right? They're they're united front against these men. Yeah, but at first, when they first they sort of mildly distrust each other, mistrust each other, and then mm-hmm. it's like open warfare between yes. them, and they are like just these horrible cutting remarks to each other, and then you know one minute later they're like sisters, and <laughs> it's just it's just uh it's hilarious to watch um, how that relationship evolves in such a short time. And it's one of the things that that struck me was how often people mention, um, like, "Oh, I only just know, I only just met you, and now I, uh, I trust you," or like trust and like rapport with people um, is so it's so fleeting in this, and it's so uh, like ethereal, like it just it sort of comes and goes. Um, and there's not really, I mean, I guess you could say with the relationship between Jack and Gwendolyn that there's something there, but with everybody else, but it's more hinted at being there than really explicitly shown. Yeah. With everyone else, it's just, um, I mean, you love somebody because their name is Ernest. And if their name wasn't Ernest, then you wouldn't love them. And you can love someone immediately upon seeing them and then hate them 30 seconds later and then be sisters with them 30 seconds later. Uh, and there just doesn't seem to be any solidity about the relationships um, between any of these people. Uh, and that's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I think part of it is this is a broad farce. Like, sure. you know, so the stakes are different for a broad farce. Like whatever genre you're playing in, it's going to be different. But then also, um, not only is it farcical, so everything is exaggerated. What we said earlier about um, Wilde's writing, it's so tight and compressed. So you've got really broad strokes in a very compressed amount of time yeah. and space. Uh, and, and so it leads to these wild swings that 
maybe it would be believable if they were played out across weeks of, you know, relationships forming and ebbing and sure. solidifying and fracturing. Um, but we get it in one scene of interaction uh, and, and everything's heightened uh, within that one scene of interaction. There's something uh, that feels like Shakespearean to me in this. Um, it's very like Midsummer Night's Dream, but it but it feels even more, even more like efficient than than that story. Mm-hmm. I think efficiency is a really good word to describe this. Um, and and I, also, I I like that reference to Midsummer Night's Dream because there, this is there's something otherworldly about how these people are interacting, and you know the world that we're being shown on this stage or on film. Uh, like it's just off enough from our world, but similar enough that it's familiar, but off enough where where you accept absurdities mm-hmm. um, in a way that absolutely happens in Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, it just doesn't have the fairies explaining the absurdities. There's no explanation for these absurdities. It's just the tone is there. Yeah, um, I had a. I was gonna say about the relationship between uh, Gwendolyn and Cecily, real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, this has maybe become a touchstone text for us in in our discussion of of women and female interactions. But there's something Mean Girls esque about it. Oh yeah. Um, the, the facade, the, we both know this is a facade and we're digging underneath, but then we're always, we're loyal to each other, despite the fact that we know that there's a facade that we will scratch really harshly underneath. Um, and in that sense, I I think that's what good farce does is it exaggerates and heightens and makes it absurd, but there's still something that you can say there's a believable element somewhere at the core of all there's a kernel of truth in the humor that makes it um at the same time like funny and poignant i think Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and yeah and i get that more from their friendship and their relationship than from like algernon and jack i do too i think they're i think they're more the more interesting characters uh Mm -hmm. in the in the story both of them and they're they're more they're more dynamic when they're together. Yes, than any other pairing that I see. <laughs> so the the two scenes I think the two scenes that I like the most are one when uh, Cecily meets Gwendolyn, and this and the other one is when um, when Cecily is with uh, Algernon, and she says that they're already engaged, and he's like, "Wait, what?" And says, yes, you engaged to me. You you proposed to me on this day, and then she opens her her diary, which we've already established is like utter nonsense (laughs) and then she's like reading his proposal and then when she when um he starts he starts saying uh how great she is and she makes him dictate it to her and then she's she pulls out the love letters and he's like i mean his mind must just be reeling at this point like who in the world is this girl (laughs) she's just so strange and amazing i love her and there's a i mean this is one of those moments where um like the uh the anchor to reality is becoming unmoored in this farce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like we said, there's a kernel of truth underneath it. Like this is a point where it's it's going as far as you can stretch it. And so much is key on uh the directors and the performers in establishing uh, a tone for this sequence that makes you still enjoy these characters and not just be like throwing your hands up and like, what in the world is this? Yeah, it kind of reminded me of um so there's this Portuguese poet called Fernando Pessoa. Are you familiar with Pessoa? I am not familiar with Pessoa. He uh, he wrote in the early 1900s, and um, he was amazing. Uh, he wrote with a bunch of different names, and um, he called them heteronyms, 
And each one of them had a different personality and wrote with a different voice. Uh, some of them wrote in English, some wrote in, uh, in Portuguese. And uh, he's just an amazing, like fascinating guy. And he was only ever in love one time to this woman named Ophelia Kados. And, uh, and he, he actually proposed to her by, um, I mean, like proposed his, uh, confessed his love to her, uh, like out of the blue one day and was quoting Shakespeare from Hamlet because her name was Ophelia. And, and then they start this relationship and they would write letters to each other, but he would write letters to her, um, using different heteronyms. And then she would respond to the letters as if she were writing to different people. And, um, and like he, there were some of his heteronyms would write and they were really mean, like, like abusive to her, like emotionally abusive. And they would say, leave Fernando Pessoa alone. And then she would write back to them and she would say, no, you leave him alone. And like, there's this whole weird, like strange creative game that they played with each other. And, um, there was something uh, of that in this with Cecily and like her writing these letters and Algernon, like his mind kind of being blown by, by her, <laughs> like her creative energy, uh, but also kind of going along with it. And um, there's something, anyway, there, I, I felt like there was something about Felia Kedos in, in Algernon in, and I think that that's how much she must have felt being with Fernando Pessoa was uh, recognizing that she was in the presence of somebody who was like kind of unhinged probably more than kind of unhinged, uh, but the, she also really um, loved him and was able to engage with him for quite a while. Um, I was going to say, how did that relationship end? Because the, what you're laying out is not a res- recipe for a healthy long-term relationship. So um, eventually uh, her, his heteronyms continued to write her um, and tell her to leave Fernando Pessoa alone. And then um, she wrote him back and said, I don't want to talk to anybody else. I only want to talk to Fernando Pessoa. And then he wrote her a letter and it said, I uh, basically it said, I'm trying to work out what's going on with me. And I don't know if I ever will be able to. And if I ever do, then I would want to fall in love. And if I ever, if I was ever with anybody, it would be with you. But I, I just, I, I can't have a relationship right now because I'm really struggling. And, uh, and so then they, um, she continued to write to him for a long time. And she was, then she was like making up uh, this future of them being together and this baby that they would have. And then eventually, but he, he stopped responding to her letters. And then eventually she stopped writing to him and uh, they ran into each other like years later in the street and sort of said hi. And then that was it. He died young. I've, I've got to say that is perhaps the least tragic outcome I had playing out in my head from what you were describing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting story. And, and Pessoa is a fascinating guy, but it's just, um, anyway, it made me think of him just because of this like creative energy that's, that's, uh, Cecily has Cecilia. What's her name? Cecily. That Cecily has, uh, it's, it's kind of astounding. And, and to see Algernon just sort of get swept up in it is um, it, it's hilarious. And it's also it, it, just intriguing. I think she's a really interesting person. So what does it say about Algernon that <laughs> he just goes along with this? Again, you talked about the solidity. I mean, quote unquote, solid, <laughs> relative solidity of Jack and that he seems to be like maybe the more grounded or more anchored of the two. And, and so I think it 
it plays into Algernon's character that he's able to be swept up in this thing because there's nothing grounding him. There's nothing holding him to the tethering him to the earth. And so when he gets swept up in her imagination, he's like, great, she's hot. And, uh, and whatever, you know, like this so is fun. He's just dandelion fluff, just getting blown. It kind of feels like that. I mean, he does make the choice to go out there and be there. That's so, his most agentive moment. Yeah. Of basically the whole thing. I mean, he goes to arrange his name being changed to Ernest, but really like the, the, the most we see him like say, you know, thinking and making a plan is I'm stealing this address. And I'm going to go see this Cecily. And then as soon as he sees we, her, he's totally smitten. And then after that, she's the one that drives his story. Yeah, and she, he, she's the reason he's going to go get rechristened. And I love the um, – oh, what's the vicar's name again? I, I, Cha, I got to check Cha, what's his name? Chance. Uh, hang on. I've got it right here. Um, his name is Chasu, Chasable. 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 Yeah. I love that Chasable will just go along with this. Yeah. Sure. Let's let's have some christenings. <laughs> you both want the same name? Fine. <laughs> uh, it's just uh, it's amazing. So the the other thing that I had written down here is um well a couple of things that I think are related. So the, you had mentioned it before um this like the self-sacrifice of men and courage and they're using all of this um all of this language associated with war and and it's I mean, like you can't imagine a situation that requires less courage or self-sacrifice or you know whatever. Uh, two situations that couldn't be more different than people actually being in war, and and then this that we're watching, um, and then also uh, this um, when Algernon, what does he say? They're talking. Uh, he says, "You can't be. You can't Bunbury here," and he says. Uh, what does he say? You can't Bunbury. I can't remember. Algernon ends up saying, um, any serious Bunburyist would know, you know, <laughs> something. And, um, just that, that juxtaposition of, you know, the serious Bunburyist or the courage of men that's, that's required to change their Christian name yeah. to, um, I think there's something, it's kind of jarring, um, but it's all, I mean, it's, it's charming, but at the same time, it does make you think. And, uh, and that's, I think why it, it's what elevates this beyond just like, oh, it's really funny, but it's also, it, it also makes you think about um, things. Well, and it's constant throughout the play that you get this juxtaposition of seriousness and shallowness. And, um, you know, there's, uh, the, the quote, I hate people who are not serious about meals. It is so shallow of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, and I mean, even the, the title of the play, right. The importance of being earnest, a trivial play for serious people yeah. that I get it right. Uh -huh. the, 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 the subtitle, um, you know, this idea of being serious about trivial things and treating serious things trivial, trivially, um, like you said, it, it's funny. Uh, like it, it's uh, like humor is subjective, but that is objectively funny the way it gets treated <laughs> in this play. <laughs> Um, and, and the kind of juxtapositions that were constantly, that are constantly being held up, but it does also, like you said, stop and make you think about, well, what is the point of treating the serious thing seriously? Like, well, you know, what is to be gained from that? If, uh, this play is constantly saying, no, treat, treat the trivial things seriously and treat the serious things trivially. We've been dealing with, uh, or we've been talking about at the college, um, 
we, the, this film just came out darkest hour. It's about Winston Churchill and, uh, and the early years or the early days of world war two when Churchill was made prime minister. And, uh, it's just in, it's intense. And, um, you see the seriousness of like the seriousness of war and the, um, the impact of decisions and uh, and then I've been thinking a lot about the film Dunkirk that I watched over the summer that has to do with the same time period and um, just the, the seriousness and the weight of thinking about, you know, war and the, and the consequences of it. And, uh, and then to contrast that with this and to see people using the same, it's almost Churchillian, the kind of uh, language that they use to describe sacrifice and courage and, and to see it in this context, it's just so strange. Changing a name to get a woman. Yeah. (laughs) And the woman will only marry someone with that name. Yeah. It's all so, um, surreal kind of, uh, Mm. and it's, it's both um, like hilarious and also slightly off-putting at the same time. Right. And well, and I think so, so the, the examples you gave of I mean, world war two, right. I, I think there's a kind of valor there and, and the use of this language that, it, and the idea of sacrifice that is so different from what Oscar Wilde might've been seeing in the 1890s with the British empire. Yeah. Um, you know, like there's where the same language is being used, but there's just a different context sure. between some of the expansionist uh, times of the British Empire and, versus the defensive time of World War Two, and um, you know what is what is right and what is moral, and and how we associate these these uh, you know these classic masculine attributes, right? Um, and, and what meaning they they give to people. I, I think Oscar Wilde's we have to position it in what era of, you know, British history uh, are, are we dealing with versus something like World War II? Yeah. And it makes me uh, in a broader context, it makes me more conscious of when I use those kinds of terms. And I think this is something that we do. I think it, it it's something that we do often where we use like in sports, for example, it's, it's very common in sports to use the language of war. And that we need to be warriors mm-hmm. and a band of brothers and and it can be inspiring, but it also, if you're not careful, it can lead you down a path where equating those two things, like the actions of someone on a football field to somebody who's actually risking their life for uh, you know freedom or democracy or whatever it is that they're doing, um, it can sort of, I think, uh, if you're not careful, can cheapen um, the language that we use mm-hmm. and and we do this in politics all the time where we equate something that's going on now that is really probably trivial uh to something non-trivial that has happened in the past um and i think it's i think it's just important to be aware of the language that we're using and um and and the the metaphors that we use and what where they are really grounded and it doesn't mean never use them but I think it's important to be aware of, of how we use them. And uh, the absurdity of the importance of being earnest actually acts as an invitation to do that, yes. <laughs> to point out that we are using these in- inappropriately in this play because we use them inappropriately in right. life. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Just talking about this play and the, and the structure of it and um, 
when I was trying to summarize it, it, it got hard because of all the mistaken identities and the same people using the same names. And it made me think of um, Frasier when Frasier will sometimes do on that on that sitcom farce episodes. And I what makes me most impressed with the farce episodes on Frasier is you get 22 minutes to set up the premise of why the farce is going to happen. You get within that. You also have to establish what the farce is. Who's like, what is the mistaken identity for whom, uh, you know, who is acting this way, have clear motivations for why and have the characters be mistaking things that the audience is aware of and clued in on mm. and, and then resolve it all within 22 minutes. And this play, like I said, is three acts, but it's pretty short three acts. Um, I'm guessing a performance of this would be less than 90 minutes. Uh, and you got to do the same thing. Like, And as a writer, to be able to make the confusion earned on stage for why people are confused and yet clear to the audience for what the truth is of, of what the situation is being worked out, that's such um, – uh, it, it's so pleasing to see it well done, right, yeah. as a writer. Because that's, that's a huge obstacle to allow confusion to reign on the stage, but the audience is never yeah, lost. It's a tall order for a writer, and to see it done well is just – uh, magical it's really great it's a delight yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and, and i think that's why uh you know this play was so well received initially and even though there was the backlash because late 1890s and the homosexuality of oscar wilde and the unacceptability of that and the fact that he became you know he, he, he was a criminal that was put in jail and he died destitute but it still got revived yeah. <laughs> and it, it gets adapted all the time and, and people keep playing with it and just moving it into musicals and moving it into opera because it's done so well. This is one of the greatest examples of that kind of farce where uh, you, you get the mistaken identities, you get uh, the, the people assuming things that uh, they don't know yet and for, for comical effect. And yet for an audience, it's so clear. Yes. You, you don't get lost in it. You can get lost trying to summarize it, as I established <laughs> uh, earlier in this episode. But when you watch it, there's no confusion. When you read it, there's no confusion. Yeah, I think that's uh, another thing that's um, Shakespearean about this is I think Shakespeare is somebody else who did that really, really well in Midsummer Night's Dream and other plays where uh, everyone on stage is confused, but the audience is able to keep things really clear. It's good stuff. Yeah, and I, I think that's like a um like a note for any aspiring writers. Like, go watch the people who do this well and like study it. Um, there was a, I was watching, um, it was a behind the scenes stuff about The Office, the NBC sitcom mm-hmm. The Office, and one of the writers who ended up working on The Office for years. They said like their first scripts was sitting down and watching a good episode of television, and they would transcribe it, <laughs> and that's how they started to get an understanding of structure and story beats like and comedy beats like when when jokes should come um and then when they started to try to write for themselves they were looking at that framework of the transcribed comedy that they'd read and you know trying to work with that and and build in now their own jokes their own characters their own punchlines um but but to do that and i think if you want to be a writer at all this is why they say go read good writing like you need to understand this structure that oscar wilde was clearly a master of yeah it's um interesting. So we we just talked recently about um, the mistletoe promise, the hallmark, and the this idea of having a formula. And um, like if you're a chemist, you can play with formulas, but you have to know the formulas, right? <laughs> like, yeah. and uh, or, or or cooking, right? Like if if you're gonna, you can play with the flavor profiles, but you got to understand at the core, what, what is work? Particularly yeah. if you're baking, like there's a science there that you can't mess with. <laughs> yeah. So I think Wilde is somebody who understood the, that formula. I'm certain from Shakespeare and others. 
Uh, and yeah, if people are interested in writing good comedy. They would do well to go back and drink from this well because it's pretty good well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts on the importance of being earnest? No, I, um, it's easy to take a glance at this and, and see it as just, um, just broad comedy and that there's, doesn't seem like there's a lot going on, but I think that there are, are really some interesting, uh, social commentaries that are really applicable today about, um, frivolity and, uh, the use of time and idleness and this, the way that we, uh, I, I think many of us are just sort of wasting the hours away in, in things that don't matter really at all. Um, and then, and then the other thing that struck me with this is what we talked about earlier, just about the use of language and being maybe more careful in the way that we use, uh, certain metaphors. Yeah. I, I like all that. I will just throw out as one final thing because of, uh, Oscar Wilde's, you know, very public, uh, the way his life went with his homosexuality after some people have, um, added some double meetings to bun burying and being part of your secret <laughs> life. Uh, and they went and, uh, they talked to some of the performers who, were in the original production and they said there was never any hint that homosexuality was part of the earnest the importance of being earnest because they've even dug up some references uh that would have been at the time uh to to earnestness or earnest uh, as a name as a code name for homosexuality or anything like that and, and the performer said that was never any of the context that we were given mm-hmm. and sometimes because of his life and what happened afterwards people have gone back and tried to overlay um some of that but it's you know, whatever your your interpretation ends up being of the importance of being earnest and what it's doing with all these double identities and uh, and and the way these relationships are so so weird but so delightful to watch them play out, you're gonna have a good time watching it. <laughs> I just gotta say that. <laughs> and I don't I don't think it's a super stretch to say that a, a man like Oscar Oscar Wilde is thinking about identity in you know, and hidden identity and, and doing, you know, acting well, in a certain way. Some of his other works, like the, uh, the, the picture of Dorian right. Gray is, you know, about identity and performance of, uh, who you are on the outside versus who you really are on the right. inside. Yeah. So it's not to say that, uh, you know, he didn't have any of that on his mind when he was writing that. I think that would be, uh, probably a gross simplification of what's going on, yes. but to say, but, 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 uh, you know, bears pointing out that it wasn't, it wasn't on his mind so much that he was um, willing to, or, or I guess writing homosexual double entendres throughout right. the entire text. Or yeah. anything like that. All right. I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us and for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre show shows go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go back and check out our discussions about much ado about nothing, a great coupling comedy from William Shakespeare or a discussion of Frasier. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow Protagonist Pod, Todd K. Mack, Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is Dizminute on Twitter. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners. We love all the feedback and discussion that happens there. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long.
and I mean, so I'm looking so up. I was just looking at your notes, and the next one under that says major plot threads that must come together. Harry's weakness about Dementors, serious Black at large, <laughs> but because of the ministry, mystery for my schedule. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> I did not read that one today. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and erase that. Um, that's kind of a distraction for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> 